Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Kyra, and we are returning for episode three of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey. In this episode, we'll look at the first few pages of book one. How does the story start? Where is our hero? How are we pulled in to this epic tale? In looking at the text itself, we can see it is structured like a poem. Remember, this is an epic, which means, and I quote, it is a long narrative poem that is usually about heroic deeds and events that are significant to the culture of the poet. Many ancient writers used epic poetry to tell tales of intense adventures and heroic feats. Some of the most famous literary masterpieces in the world were written in the form of epic poetry. Because it was written in poem form, it has line numbers on the right-hand side. The lines are numbered every 10 lines or so, so you're in increments of 10. So you get line 10 numbered and then line 20 numbered, and in between you would count. When we talk about the book, we can use page numbers and line numbers to help us identify certain parts. So let's say we're in class, we want to talk about page three. There's a whole ton of writing on page three, so we can use line numbers to help everyone find the part that we want to talk about. Moving forward in this episode, we'll look at specific parts of the text to really dig deep and figure out what the heck is going on in the first few pages. The types of ideas I talk about here can definitely be applied when you read this yourself. You should take notes as you read, look up definitions, ask questions, and all that. As you listen, be sure to add what I discuss here to your own notes and annotations. Get your pencils, pens, highlighters, and maybe a few sticky notes or even a notebook ready to go. Let's start at the beginning. Sing in me, muse, and through me tell the story of that man skilled in all ways of contending. The wanderer, harried for years on end after he plundered the stronghold on the proud height of Troy. In this first stanza, which means this poetic paragraph, the storyteller is asking the muse, the nine goddesses of music and myth, for inspiration to tell the story of that man skilled in all ways of contending. We can assume that Odysseus is not the narrator. He would not likely refer to himself in this way. We can also see there aren't any quotation marks around this part of the text, even though someone is talking. So the narrator is the storyteller. It is Homer. That man, as in the quote, that man skilled in the always of contending, is likely Odysseus, because we already know this story is about Odysseus. And we know, as this says, he is, quote, skilled in all ways of contending. In looking up the word contending, it means to go against rivals, to compete, to argue. So in a few different ways, battle, debate, contest, Odysseus is skilled. He's not just strong, but he's smart and he's competitive. He is known also as the Wanderer, maybe because he's traveled around for nearly 10 years after leaving Troy. This term, calling Odysseus the Wanderer, is a description. It's sometimes used throughout the text in place of his name. So instead of saying Odysseus this, Odysseus that, Odysseus this, Odysseus that for 24 chapters, Instead, we give him descriptive phrases like the wanderer to identify him. It's a name replacement, and this actually has a term. It's called an epithet. 
So we see quite a few of these epithets, these descriptive phrases to replace names throughout the Odyssey. So keep an eye out for these. We also see within this first stanza, he is, quote, harried on end or years, which means he is, quote, beset by problems or harassed. In other words, he is never left alone. He is constantly battling someone after he left Troy. So it's not like he was just gallivanting, jumping around, having a good time. And then after 10 years, he was like, yep, time to go home. No, he was harassed. He was constantly in a battle to try to get home. In the second stanza, or the second paragraph on this first page, we learn Odysseus saw the townlands and learned the minds of distant men. Maybe this is where the ideal wanderer comes in. He, quote, weathered many bitter nights and days in his deep heart at sea. In other words, we learn he has suffered emotionally. He has suffered specifically at sea, which is Poseidon's domain. So I wonder why there's that emphasis at sea. So I might make a note to myself like, hmm, I wonder if Poseidon has something to do with this. So because otherwise that doesn't make sense. His deep heart at sea, like, yes, he's traveling by boat, but he's not a sailor. He's the king of Ithaca. And it goes on to say, quote, while he fought only to save his life to bring his shipmates home. So remember, he took all the men from Ithaca with him. And so returning from Troy, he's the leader, the king, who's responsible for bringing all of these men, husbands, fathers, home. In thinking about this, we learn something about Odysseus as a leader. He wanted to bring them a home. He did what he could through, as it says, will and valor, which means through bravery, through strength of mind. He did everything that he could, everything in his power, at least according to the storyteller he did. But as we can see from this sentence structure, his life came first. He was the king after all. And as we learn in the next line, bringing his shipmates home just wasn't to be. It wasn't in the cards. He could not save them. They all die. And we learn it's not Odysseus's fault. Their death is their own fault for, quote, feasting on the cattle of Lord Helios, the sun. They ate cattle that didn't belong to them. It was actually the sun god's cattle. So, you know, as we know by now, don't anger the gods. In the third stanza, the storyteller calls out to the muse again to, quote, lifting the great song again, to tell this story again. And the storyteller gives us, the audience, a starting point. Begin when all the rest who left behind them headlong death in battle or at sea had long ago returned, while he alone still hungered for home and wife. In these lines, we learn that everyone else left behind them the death of battle, the death at sea. They left war and traveling for home a long time ago. A simpler way to say this, it's been a long time, buddy, and everybody else has gotten home except for you. So let's start when everybody else, all the other Greeks who had fought at Troy are home, and they were home a long time ago. Only Odysseus remains. He, as we learn at the end of this page, is with Lady Calypso, the immortal, beautiful nymph who wants Odysseus for her own. On page two, we hear a beautiful description of how long Odysseus has been kept from home. When long years and seasons wheeling brought around that point of time ordained for him to make his passage homeward. So long years and seasons went by while he was away. 
And we also hear the word ordained about his passage, his journey home. It was fate. It was designed. It was not just a choice. It had to be the right time. So someone or something interfered until it was chosen time for him to go home. Even after all these years, he has already struggled. He was at war for 10 years. He helped them win that battle. He tried to go home. But yet, even when he is able to go home, quote, trials and dangers even so attended him. There are even trials and problems at home on Ithaca. Maybe this means even when he gets home, there will be trials. And we'll see in the next few lines that all of the gods actually pity Odysseus except Poseidon, who, like the sea, rages cold and rough until at last Odysseus can return home. He's still going to have some troubles, even where we're going to be dropped into the story. Obviously, someone's made Poseidon angry. And we learn that right now, at this point in the story on page two, Poseidon is gone far away to, quote, the most remote of men where he is being regaled or celebrated with a feast, And he, quote, lingers there, enjoying the celebration. So at this point in the story, Poseidon is not where he usually is, hanging out, giving Odysseus problems. Instead, he's far away at a feast, and he's lingering. He's staying there. Then, in the second full stanza on this page, around line 40, we head towards Mount Olympus in, quote, the bright hall of Zeus, where all the other gods are. And we hear Zeus meditate on Agisthos, who I mentioned in my previous podcast episode's bonus story, who was killed by Agamemnon's son, and Zeus spoke his thoughts out loud. In other words, Zeus was going to tell the other gods what he was thinking about this man, Agisthos. He says, My word, how mortals take the gods to task. All their afflictions come from us, we hear, and what of their own failings? Greed and folly double the suffering the lot of man. Let me translate this. Oh, these stupid humans. They blame us for everything. All their problems come from us, they say. But what about their own faults? They are greedy and stupid, which makes them suffer. And then Zeus refers to Agasthos as an example of how mortals blame the gods. But really, it's their own faults, these stupid humans. Agasthos, Zeus says, was told not to kill the man, not to touch his wife. But he did it anyways. So that's why he died because he didn't listen to the gods. At this point, Zeus is really annoyed with the mortals, and he says that Agathos got what he deserved when he says, quote, Now he has paid the reckoning in full. On page three, this conversation continues, but instead of hearing from Zeus, we see the gray-eyed goddess Athena, which is another epithet, jump in. Oh, majesty... Oh, father of us all. Okay, seriously, who talks like that to their king or dad at all? Only someone who wants something. I mean, no matter how you read this, Oh, majesty, oh, father of us all. Oh, majesty, oh, father of us all. No matter how you read it, that's just overboard. I mean, he may be father of quite a few of them, but surely not all of them. He is in charge, but still. Regardless of that rant, Athena goes on to say, So perish all who do what he has done which essentially means you're right about everything. Those mortals don't listen. They deserve it. May they all die if they don't listen to you. From there, she goes on to her main reason for buttering, O Majesty, O Father, up. 
Odysseus, who her heart, quote, breaks for. We can see from Athena's description of Odysseus why she likes him. He is essentially her human form. He is, quote, a mastermind of war, just like her. So it's easy to imagine she likes him because he reminds her a little of herself. In lines 67 to 69, Athena talks about how Odysseus is trapped by the daughter of Atlas. Remember, Atlas is the titan god who's holding up the world. And he's trapped on a wooden island in the sea's middle. And Athena discusses how this daughter of Atlas tries to beguile Odysseus, which means she tries to trick, flatter, and hoodwink Odysseus into staying with her. And if we remember from page one, this reference to the Lady Calypso. Calypso is probably who they're talking about here. Athena really goes on and on about how Odysseus is trapped away from home. And then she says, Are you not moved by this, Lord of Olympus? Had you no pleasure from Odysseus's offerings at Troy? Oh, Zeus, what do you hold against him now? Basically, Athena wants Zeus to help Odysseus and is guilting Zeus into doing this by telling him how bad Odysseus has it. He's trapped by a nymph in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't like it. He, quote, longs to die just to catch a glimpse of home again. Then she says, Zeus, it's your fault. You must be angry at Odysseus because you're letting him suffer so much. You, you majesty of us all, you have the power to make him go home, and you're letting him suffer. Zeus, called by the epithet, the summoner of the clouds, replies, my child, what strange remarks you let escape you. Could I forget that kingly man, Odysseus? There is no mortal half so wise. No mortal gave so much to the lord of the open sky. Translation, bruh, of course I love Odysseus. He's wise. He's smart. He's cool. He honors me with his gifts to the gods. So clearly, Zeus likes Odysseus, and even the gods recognize him as wise and say that he honors them well. Zeus goes on to explain that it is only the god who laps the land in water, Poseidon, who bears him a grudge. Only Poseidon is angry with Odysseus because, as we learn, Odysseus poked out the eye of Polyphemus, who, as Zeus says in a really complicated way, is Poseidon's cyclops' son. Note, this is not a regular-sized dude or a regular-sized cyclops that we see in the Percy Jackson movie. No, cyclopses are giant, and as they say, quote, a lout which means that it's a huge person with one eyeball. As a result of Odysseus poking his eyeball out, he can't see. So he blinded Poseidon's son. Poseidon is naturally angry after his son was blinded. And that, we can assume, is why Poseidon's angry at Odysseus and won't leave him alone. Wouldn't you be angry if somebody poked out your son's only eye too? On page four, Zeus continues to talk about Odysseus and says, let us talk of his return so he may sail. Zeus says that Poseidon should give up and let it go, as Elsa says. Let it go, let it go. Poseidon can't stand alone against the rest of us gods, Zeus says, so he has to stop being so, quote, quarrelsome. No, not quite Professor Quarrelsome level. He just needs to stop fighting and being annoying. And then Athena answers, again, buttering him up. Oh, majesty, oh, father of us all. Let's let Odysseus go home. Send Hermes, the wayfinder, another epithet, to tell the nymph on her island of Ogea that we want him to go home. We have set our fixed intent. Our decision is made. This chick must let Odysseus go. Athena herself 
can't go send this message. Oh no, she's going to Ithaca to see Odysseus's son and to put more courage in him and have him, quote, call an assembly of the islanders because he needs to, quote, warn off the wolf pack of suitors who are there taking his food, messing with his life. Suitors are people who tend to try to date or marry someone else. So you can imagine that this wolf pack of suitors is there at Odysseus's home to try to marry somebody. Hmm, who would everybody want to marry? I don't know, a queen who's been left alone for 20 years? Jeez, Odysseus really needs to get home. Remember, these men grew up without fathers. Their dads all went away to war with Odysseus and they never returned. So these men, this wolf pack of suitors, are growing up without any training, without being taught respect, and they all want to marry the richest woman. Athena says the son must set off to look for news of his father and, quote, win his own renown. Essentially, Odysseus' son, who we know from a previous episode, is called Telemachus. Telemachus needs to stop being a baby. He needs to go on his own adventure and become a hero himself so he'll be worthy of respect and he can tell these suitors to leave off. We've come to the end of our episode. This is just a bit of the first four pages, discussed in pretty fine detail. Hopefully, it helps you understand what is happening as the story begins and makes it easier for you to read going forward. Not all the episodes in the podcast will be this detail or look this closely at it, but especially when we start reading a text, we want to dig deep. We want to start with a clear understanding so we know what's going to happen going forward. Keep reading to find out what happens when Odysseus's son Telemachus meets Athena, the gray-eyed goddess in disguise. Special thanks for information in this episode from study.com and Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey. 